Acts 18, verses 11 through 23, these are the words of God. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must, by all means, keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. Rejoice that he attends the preaching of it by his spirit and with his power. Please be seated. The Apostle covers a lot of ground and water uh, in the passage that is now before us. Uh, He starts out with a year and a half in Antioch, but then in very rapid order, uh, not Antioch, sorry, in Corinth, but in very rapid order, he goes to Sincrea, Ephesus, Caesarea, Jerusalem, Antioch again, and then at least a half a dozen other places under the uh, the summary title, the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. What determines Paul's travel schedule in this passage? How does he decide that a year and a half in Corinth is enough? Well, part of that we see It comes out of his conversation in Ephesus. Uh, If he is staying uh, in places because the Lord is uh, is giving him ministry to do there, surely he would stay where the Jews of the synagogue, um, like Berea, uh, except without people from Jews from Thessalonica coming down and poisoning Berea, um, uh, beg him to stay with them longer. They ask him to stay longer with them, but he does not consent. And I think it's at that point that we find out uh, why 
Uh, he's in a hurry. He wants to get to Jerusalem. He wants to get to Jerusalem at a specific time uh, because the number of his brethren who are in Jerusalem, and especially the number of the brethren who will have come from Gentile territories to Jerusalem, will have swelled. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves there. But he, he wants to get to Jerusalem so that he can greet them. Uh, and, of course, it's not just to say hello. The greeting them is the greeting of uh, of the Apostle Paul, much like we uh, we see in so many of his letters, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or grace, mercy, and peace. Uh, and then this outflowing of what grace and peace from God in Christ looks like. Uh, and uh, particularly suited to each congregation's particular context. Um, uh, he wants to, to greet them, but uh, it seems that as soon as that's done, he goes down to Antioch, his sending church. This is Antioch in Syria, not Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, and he spends some time there. Uh, and again, we don't think that he's just you know, a missionary on furlough, kicking up his heels, enjoying uh, his well-earned vacation in Antioch. Uh, that's not consistent at all with what we've seen from uh, the apostle, either in Acts or uh, in his letters. Uh, but uh, he's there in some time, and uh, as he makes his way back to Ephesus, what is he doing the whole way to Ephesus? He is strengthening all the disciples in Galatia and Phrygia. That's what determines his travel schedule. This desire to strengthen the churches of God and the disciples, the followers of Jesus, whom the Lord has gathered into those churches. Those who have been in their being added to the number of the church have been marked off as disciples by the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the naming ceremony of baptism, and who therefore uh, receive not only the sacrament, but also the teaching to keep all that Christ has commanded in dependence upon that glorious reality that Jesus is with them always, even to the end of the age. And so this language of strengthening the disciples actually connects us from where we have been in Acts 18 and how the Lord stirred up his apostle to zeal and sustained his apostle in ministry. And particularly that appearance of the Lord Jesus to him at the beginning of the year and a half. And then the fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus had said to him, which is... Uh, which is the actually the bulk of our passage from 11 to 18. The rest comes uh, in such rapid fashion from uh, 18 uh, to 23. And he actually doesn't tell us, does he, at what point in the year and a half verses 12 to 17 take place. It is an example of how the Lord Jesus kept his promise to be, uh, to be with Paul so that no one would attack him to hurt him because Jesus had many people in that city whom he was going to save through the ministry of Paul. That's what you have in, uh, in 
verse uh, 10, and then verse 11 gives us a summary, and he continued there a year and six months, tells us the exact amount of time, teaching the word of God among them. And then in verse 18, he says, so Paul still remained a good while. Now, if he'd have given us a few more dates in there somewhere, uh, and if we could overlap that with some secular history to know when Gallio is proconsul of Achaia, uh, perhaps we could work out. But probably Gallio is proconsul of Achaia long enough that there's still a big overlap. There's an intentional kind of non-telling or non-location in, in the within the year and six months of this event at the judgment seat of Gallio so that we will continue to see that the entire year and six months, Paul is strengthened, Paul is fueled by the fact that the Lord Jesus is present with him, that the Lord Jesus by his power is uh, is sustaining him in this work, is carrying out his purpose to save sinners, gather them into the church, and to sanctify saints, to build up into Christ within the church those who have been gathered into the church. And so when, it's, when he has the opportunity to do that in Jerusalem, that he makes haste to Jerusalem, and even on the way. Uh, apparently, uh, we don't know who planted the church in Sincrea. We know that there was uh, a lady uh, named Phoebe who was known for her service. Uh, and there's been some monkeying around with that word to, uh, to ordain her after the fact. Uh, by something Paul says in a letter. Don't let anybody do that to you. Uh, it's a different form uh, of the diakon uh, root even. Uh, and you can hear what they say she is. They say, oh, she's a church officer. She's a deacon. No, she's a servant. We're all called to be servants. The Lord Jesus in some places is called a servant uh, using similar form of the word. But there's a church there uh, perhaps that Paul founds just as he's passing through. And we know from the, the synagogue language, he plants the church at Ephesus in like a day or two. He makes a pit stop in Ephesus and plants a church that he's going to come back to and disciple for three years. A church that will end up at different times uh, having as its pastor Paul, Timothy, Apollos, John the Apostle, um, a church that becomes uh, quite strong, quite famous, but he's hurrying to Jerusalem, and he gets to Jerusalem, and in order to make his way back, he passes through his home church, strengthens them, and then he goes through Galatia and Phrygia, and what is he doing his whole way back to Ephesus to, uh, to start or continue the discipling work in the church that he'd planted, strengthening all the disciples. Why? Well, because he's a disciple. And he has needed strengthening. He has been uh, in situations and at times where uh, he was just in kind of waiting mode. And the Lord Jesus has come and been present to him, reassured him, reaffirmed all of that doctrine that we heard about not going to be able to remember how many weeks we've been in what was supposed to be one sermon on the previous passage. 
reaffirmed all that doctrine, reassured him of the reality of God carrying out in history his plan of redemption. The God who covenants within himself to do this saving. And then whose plan for how it happens in time with people would be that it would happen with a gathered church and in households, that there would be this covenantal aspect to the whole plan of redemption and gives his apostle to see even that being carried out. And so we can uh, neatly organize uh, what we hope to hear uh, in our remaining time under these two heads. That first he was strengthened through the experience of the Lord's faithfulness in verses 11 through 18. That what Jesus had said to him uh, in verse 10 uh, came true. And probably not just in this one event, although this is the one that Luke counts for, uh, recounts for us, but that Jesus was with him so that no one would attack him to hurt him until everyone that Jesus had planned to use him to bring to faith had been brought to faith at that time. Uh, And that having been strengthened through the experience of the Lord's faithfulness, that he went on to strengthen others. And so the Lord had said, I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The Lord restrains his enemies. He is the God of sovereign providence. No one can do anything apart from him. There are always those two intentions, those two wills involved. You remember Joseph. Again, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. There are two intentions and uh, there's, uh, there's not a struggle to figure out who will gain their aim because God super intends. The Lord Jesus super intends everything that happens. He is good and he does good. Not everything that happens is entirely good in and of itself, but the good that he does through it is always good. There are evil men who intend evil and who do evil. But the Lord superintends. The Lord who is good intends good and does good. He is not the author of the evil that is done. But he ordains it. He plans the good that he will do even by what evil others do. Some use the word permissive will, but do not allow that to to mean in your mind something like passive will, because God is active in the good that he is doing at those times. And this is a restraint that always applies. What good works are you walking in? Dear children, I know what some of the good works that you are walking in. Obeying your parents. You know how I know? Because the apostle who calls you saints, because you are set apart as holy in his church. He says that about us 
in 1 Corinthians 7, and then he addresses children in the church uh, in Ephesians and Colossians as part of the saints at Ephesus and the saints at Colossae. He comes and he says in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3 that children are to obey their parents. And in Ephesians 6 specifically, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now this means first that you have to believe in Jesus. Because you are you who are set apart to the Lord as children who are in his church, you are not in the Lord except by faith in Jesus Christ. This is why mom and dad, as they train you and as they discipline you, are always discipling you, always telling you that sin only has one solution. And it's not church membership and it's not being a covenant child and it's not baptism. It is the righteousness and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would be united to him through faith so that you might be forgiven of the guiltiness of your sin. But also so that you, by faith in Jesus Christ, might walk with him and it would no longer be you who live, but Jesus who lives in you. All of that is commanded in the command, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then your parents teach you wonderful things like by grace you have been saved through faith. And even the faith was not of yourselves and it wasn't of mom and dad. It was the gift of God so that you wouldn't be able to boast because you were not your own workmanship. You were not your parents' workmanship. You were his workmanship created new in Christ Jesus to do good works like children obey your parents in the Lord. And then there's this wonderful phrase after. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Every obedience to your parents that is in the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, because he has saved you, because his spirit is now working out his character in you. It is part of the work that he has given you to do. You know, children die. Believing children die. I remember many walks through a fairly, you know, Larger cemetery, or at least more graves. No, it was larger too. In Mississippi, with my one-year-old and my two-year-old, and then my two-year-old and three-year-old and three-year-old and four-year-old. You know who they are now because they're my two eldest. It was that long ago. And we would stop at the smallest graves. And we would stop at the tombs with the shortest time span. And I would remind them, even believing children die. But you know what they did in this world if they were believers in Christ Jesus? Every single good work that he had prepared beforehand for them to walk in. Now we can't do the same as we've done with the children, with you who are wives and you who are mothers and you who are husbands and you who are fathers and you who are, are employees and you who are employers and you who are neighbors and you who are church members. But you are immortal 
until your work is done. He's written every day for you in his book before one of them came to be. And he converted you at exactly the right time so that you would no longer live in your flesh but would live in faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. And it would no longer be you who lived but Christ who lived in you. And you know what no one can do? They cannot kill you until every one of those works that has been appointed for you has been done. We are immortal until our work is done. Christ is building his church and the part that you have in the building of his church, your gathering, your singing and admonishing one another, your eating and drinking at the table and showing forth his death until, uh, until he comes, your hearing together the preaching of his word, your calling upon his name with one heart as you are led in prayer, all of that ministry that we have to one another and with one another and we don't have time to go over again. We wish we did. Ephesians 4 and the entire book of Hebrews and so many other places. Every single believer has within the church and then to your neighbors and in intercession for your neighbors and intercession for those who are in high places. You who have been joined to the one mediator between God and man, you have the part that has been assigned to you in the work that he is doing and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So that even in the day that it comes for you to die, Jesus is with you in the day that you die. Even if it's one of those seasons in the church, like the covenanters who were slaughtered at such a rate that it is literally known in the history books as the killing times. Romans 8 describes such seasons, doesn't it? We are as sheep led to the slaughter. We are slaughtered all day long. I've done this to you before. We missed part of the quote. For your sake, we are slaughtered all day long. If I live still, it is for his sake. And if I die today, it is for his sake. And it hasn't separated me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. What Paul knew by a vision of Jesus standing before him and what was driven home before the judgment seat of Gallio in verse 11 to 17 of our text is true for every single believer. It is a restraint that always applies. No one can do anything to you that Christ has not ordained for you for your good both to sanctify you and to give you opportunity to count him worthy, to serve him. We are immortal until our work is done. And even when we come to die, the last duty of a Christian is to die well. Now, some of you are old enough that you're starting to think about it. Well, attend upon the means of grace and ask that the Holy Spirit would keep conforming you to Christ 
So that when you come to depart from this world, it is with joy, it is with satisfaction that you go to your Redeemer, that you're about to say goodbye to all of the remaining sin in one last wonderful fell swoop. And you'll be free forever. And you'll finally desire him like you should have. And in the moment that you desire him like you should have for the first time, you will have him like you could never imagine now. But you know what, children? It's not just those who have become widows 60 and over and who can continue night and day 24-7 in supplication and who are satisfied with him who never find themselves idle because even though their hands don't have the ability to do and the opportunity to do, their heart is always active, working, calling upon the name of God, enjoying fellowship with Him. During those killing times, and you should get a book about the Covenanters, many a child died for their faith and were happy and testified as they were being executed. How glad they are that they know the Lord Jesus. And that they are going to him. And so this restraint always applies. The Lord Jesus with us, our immortality until the work is done, no one being able to attack us to hurt us. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're already super conquerors. There may be much evil and much not just oppression and restriction and second-class citizening of Christians coming. There may be slaughtering of believers coming. But no one will attack you to hurt you until everything that Jesus has assigned for you in this world is completed. This was that with which Paul was strengthened. This was, he was excited to go to Jerusalem with all the Christians there and the increasing persecution of the church at the hand of the Jews, especially in the midst of the feast. Minister to them and go back to Antioch and strengthen them and then follow from Antioch as he he goes through Galatia and Phrygia and strengthen all the disciples. The wonderful result was he stayed a year and six months. What will be the result in your life? How long are you going to persist in your calling, are we going to grow weary in well-doing? If we know that Jesus is with us and that he's the one who's picked out these works for us, these good works of fighting against our sin, that it seems like it's a law in my members that they're always there and I keep doing the things that I hate and I never do the, the good that I love, it feels that way, well, stop living according to your feelings. God, through Jesus Christ, will save you from the body of this death. Even now, as you fight your sin, you're doing it because the spirit who leads you to do it is the spirit of sonship who tells you the reason you hate the sin is it doesn't belong to the family resemblance. 
And the Father who has joined you to the Son is going to, by His Spirit, get rid of every last particle of your sin. We are more than conquerors belongs to the first half of Romans 8, every bit as much as it belongs to the second half of Romans 8, even for the battle of sin, even for the battle of mortification and sanctification. You grow weary leading your family in worship, your increasingly worn out body, finding the days of work increasingly long. But the Lord Jesus is with you and you're still alive and you still have a family and you still have a voice. We are going to close this day before God together, just like we opened it together. God helping me. You grow weary of keeping the house, submitting to your husband, patiently instructing your children and disciplining them for the 14th time today or the 73rd if you count all of the children. You're going to grow weary in something that Jesus is with you for, that he has planned for you and that he is literally restraining everything in heaven and earth that wants to kill you because there are still good works planned for you, prepared for you beforehand. And those good works are your children and that laundry and that discipline and the neighbor who picked the most inconvenient time to break her hip. And once we are strengthened this way don't we want to come and share how the lord has strengthened us don't we know that there are brothers and sisters who are weary of well-doing who are not living for the service and for the display of the one who has saved them who are stuck in worldliness who go through the religious motions and go through uh, and uh, hurry through the the least amount that their conscience will let them get away with as children obeying their parents or as wives or as mothers or as husbands so that they can get to their fun, so they get to their weekend, so that they can get to their play, so that they can follow the religion of Israel at the base of the mountain while Moses is on the mountain having invented for themselves whatever feels to be the most pleasant way of celebrating the redemption from Egypt. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Oh, well, let's have calf day. Let's establish a tradition that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is going to pick up again. And And let us make the celebration of God's redemption as fun as possible. Why do we say that? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he's warning those who are in the church that their love of fun is from Satan and that pleasure in God can be had even in eating, even in drinking, even in whatever you do. Good things are not bad and enjoying them is not bad, but living for enjoyment is bad as opposed to living for the enjoyment of God. And the church scripture there quotes as the one slice from that particular incident. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And even in Christian homes, what's happening? 
Children are learning by the way that we talk and the way that we live that we exist for pleasure. They're not learning. Jesus is with me because I still have work to do in glorifying him. My food is good because it's from Jesus. My drink is good because it's from Jesus. And every enjoyable thing that he has made in this world is good because it's from him. But what makes life good is him. And then the Lord carries us through something. He gives us suffering. He gives us endurance. He gives us hope. He gives us rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And we realize I'm immortal until my work is done. And the Lord has strengthened me. And how do I know that my brothers and sisters need to be strengthened? It's because I am often the brother or sister who needs the strengthening. And often there are whole churches that go off the rails and need the strengthening. And so the strengthened apostle who has been used for the strengthening of the church in Corinth, he's hurrying to Jerusalem for the strengthening of the church in Jerusalem. And he finishes at at Jerusalem and takes advantage of the opportune time when there are going to be all those Jews there. He, He hurries to his home church that they might be strengthened too. And he's made a promise. He has to keep his word in in Ephesus. But he's going to go through Galatia and Phrygia and strengthen every single church. Look at the words. In order. Strengthening all the disciples. He systematically plans how he's going to get to Ephesus by how many disciples he can strengthen along the way. You see, the Lord loves his church. He has loved the church from before time began. He has loved the church by giving himself on the cross. He has loved the church by sending his word and attending by his Holy Spirit to gather into the church. He has loved the church by strengthening the church once they're gathered in, ministering his presence to them, reminding them of all the doctrine that he teaches them, building them up in the faith of Jesus Christ. And the more he makes us to be like himself, the more we love the church, the more we want to reinforce one another's doctrine, the more we want to point one another to the fact that the Lord Jesus is with us, the more we want to help each other stop living for idleness, stop living for pleasure, start living for whatever it is that the Lord Jesus still has you in this world for. And it is not your favorite TV show that you are binging. And it is not the new film. And it is not the resurrection of the 19th century equivalent of whatever the entertainments of the culture are. It is for the knowledge and enjoyment of your creator who is now your redeemer. We be strengthened in him so that we may strengthen others. Paul still needed strengthening. There's a problem in verse 21. He takes leave of them saying, and then uh, the critical text, you know, just edited this part out, perhaps out of embarrassment for the apostle. I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. So if you got an ESV, NIV, NASB, whatever, it doesn't, doesn't have that line in there. Someone was embarrassed for the apostle, cut it out. Perhaps. Dangerous to play psychology, but that's how the critical text is done, by playing psychology with how the text got changed. Matthew Henry says, well, 
He's not actually going to keep the feast. He's uh, he's, uh, going because of whatever else he needs to do in Jerusalem at that specific time. Except for it says that he is going to keep the feast. It's okay. Paul's a sinner. He's still growing in grace. He still needs strengthening. I mean, if you have a problem here, what are you going to do with when we get to chapter 21 and he's going to offer blood sacrifices and God providentially intervenes by having him arrested first? Paul, the apostle, is going to offer a blood sacrifice after he comes to faith in Christ and his once for all sacrifice. He's a sinner, as we all are. But the Lord comes to us by his word and he strengthens us. And the more he conforms us to himself, the more we want to be used in strengthening one another. We've seen him uh, do this before. He does it at the end of his first missionary journey and. uh Chapter 14, verse 21 and 22, as he goes back through all the churches and appoints elders and uh, strengthens them by telling them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's how Christians strengthen one another. We saw him do it uh, as uh, as he was leaving with Silas after the big breakup uh, with Barnabas in chapter uh, in chapter 15 and verse 41. Judas and Silas, who had come down from the church in Jerusalem in the first place, that's what they were doing in the church in Antioch when they came down. At this point, Priscilla and Aquila leave Corinth with him. Apparently, Timothy and Silas don't. They stay to strengthen the the church in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila get as far as Ephesus, uh, but they don't go with him to Ephesus because they're still there when Apollos comes. And Priscilla and Aquila are doing what? They're strengthening uh, the disciples in Ephesus. Apollos comes uh, to Ephesus and he's not teaching right. And they take him aside and they help him with his doctrine. You see, God strengthens us to strengthen others. And he strengthens those to strengthen others. You and I have been ministered to, haven't we, by all those whom the Lord brought into our lives who opened his word to us and with us, who worshiped alongside us, who helped us to love not our lives even unto death, who helped us not to love the world or the things of the world because loving the world is enmity with God. The Lord strengthens us by the affirmation that his purpose in the world, the reason the world still exists, this version of it, Romans 6, fifth seal, saints under the altar, is because the number of their brethren isn't yet completed. He strengthens us by the affirmation that his purpose in this world is the gathering of sinners into his church to make saints. And then the growing of those saints within his church as he produces in them the holiness that is necessary for them to see the Lord. And as he carries them through completing every one of the good works that he has prepared beforehand for them to walk in. But we can hardly endure walking in good works. 
even if the good work is hearing a sermon together, hearing this text open together. And how many of us weary with the length of the sermon and how late it started. And our flesh goes after so many other things. We don't realize that the Lord brings us by his word and by his grace with his spirit to build us up into Christ so that on the Monday and the Tuesday and the Wednesday and the Thursday, or if you don't like the pagan name, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, that when we are weary of the works that he's given us to walk in on those days, it will have been by the strengthening of his spirit applying his word to us now and our listening together eagerly now not being already at the restaurant with whatever other church that beat us there so they could tip badly. But counting Christ as our food and Christ as our drink and Christ as our life so that when we go out to eat or when we, we go, when we have food, it's Christ whom we enjoy in the goodness of the food. And when we have drink, it's Christ whom we enjoy in the goodness of the drink. And when we live our lives, it is especially looking for those good works to walk in because Christ is our life. So that we'll be strengthened not to waste and destroy our lives in flesh-pleasing and worldliness because that's not why no one has attacked us to hurt us or to kill us. We have not been spared being slaughtered by the haters of Christ and the haters of Christians so that we can be comfortable, entertained people. And the Lord strengthens us by reminding us that that's what we're here for. You know, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. That's actually where you get the phrase tent making ministry. Well, I have news for you. Look at where Priscilla and Aquila are now. They're not making tents in Corinth anymore. They're making tents in Ephesus. Why? Because that's where they go to church now. They're probably still making tents full time. But they have a tent making ministry. You see, the, the making of the tents puts food on the table. And enables them to give for the ministry, for the ministry of the church. But they are tent-making members of the church in Ephesus. You know, you're, every one of us is called to at least tent-making ministry. I don't know if you've run into these. You know, they're basically elders and they can be paid ruling elders and that's fine. The Bible believes in those things too and should. We'll run into somebody who calls himself a tent-making minister. You know what a tent-making minister is? It's a Christian. It's someone who has a calling that is necessary. You know, some of you, you children, you have school that you do and it's tent-making ministry and you have your chores in the house. Maybe you're the one who sets the table. Maybe you're the one who changes the trash. Maybe you're the one who sorts the laundry. Maybe those things are all shared in some way in your household. It's tent making, but it's not why you're here. You're here to know the Lord Jesus and to make him known. 
to find him as the pleasure of your life and him as the purpose of your life. There were a lot more applications for this part of the sermon. But each of us can apply it to what our day job is. Unless your day job is to prepare and preach sermons. Then you had better not love the world or the things of the world. Or waste the fact that you're still alive on entertainments. God help me and forgive me. Widows were supposed to learn that by the time they were 60, right? Didn't that, we just heard read from 1 Timothy 5. Well, how are they going to learn it by the time they're 60? If us, if we, husbands and fathers, and then if your mother does come, end up being a, a widow who has children and grandchildren and is in your household, is she going to have the Deuteronomy 6 life? In your house, your daughters who are growing up in your church, in your houses, fathers, husbands, are they learning so to enjoy the fellowship of God Himself, even in their school and even in their chores and even in their all day, everyday labors, so that they will count prayer? as a great occupation of their time for the rest of their lives? Are we all being tent-making ministers together? This is what the Lord Jesus strengthens us to be. And the more he strengthens us to be this, the more we want to strengthen one another because we all need it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's this phrase that meant the way uh, it was when it was used on me in evangelism at the church that I grew up in uh, was dreadfully used. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's what they would say to all unbelievers. And you just want to paint a Noah's Ark, and this isn't original to me, with Noah leaning out the window to all those who are about to perish in the flood and saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not true for everybody, is it? It is true that he loves you. He's doing you good. He's making his sun to shine and his rain to fall on you. But if you're a believer, if you're a believer, 1 Corinthians, no, Acts 18, verse 10. Shaping your knowledge of Acts 18, verses 11 to 23. Says, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. You are immortal until your work is done. And that work of knowing Christ and making him known is his plan for your life. That's why you're alive. He strengthens us with that so that we will delight to have that life. And so that we will want to strengthen others. That they would delight by God's grace working in them to have that life as well. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the certainty that no one can attack us to hurt us until your work for us is done. We praise you for how you drove this home to Paul. He didn't even have to open his mouth in his defense. We thank you that you not only come to us by your word, by your spirit, and tell this to us, but that you have given us the privilege and the honor of being used by you in one another's lives. Help us to love your kingdom above all. Help us to love your glory above all. Help us to pour out our lives like a drink offering. That we would do whatever is our tent making as unto your glory. But that when we're not doing our tent making, and even while we are, you would give us to look up for opportunities for enjoying knowing you and all the good that you do us and for making you known that others may know you and enjoy you as well. We pray that your spirit would do this blessed work in our lives. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.